You know, when I, I saw God is on the move in the order, and I said, surely that's not the one that's on the radio, like the really contemporary rock and roll one, but uh, it was. That was awesome. Carol, you may have a gig like playing with Russell or something. That was pretty, yeah. That was awesome. I saw the youth like turn around and look at each other like, this is the, yeah, this is the song we like that we know. And yeah, saw some head bobbing over there, Gabe. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for the reminder. God is on the move when we don't see it in each and every nation. Did you know that there are more Christians today now than there ever have been ever in history? Did you know there were more martyrs in 2016 than any other year ever in Christian martyrs? Do you know that God is on the move? Whether we see it or not, God is on the move, and I am thankful to see it here at Woodmont Baptist Church when God does amazing things here. I'm so grateful. So uh, thank you again, choir, for that great reminder. We're going to continue our series today walking through this amazingly rich book of Hebrews. During this month of November, we're taking a look at the, the claims of the anonymous author of Hebrews that they're making, particularly the claim that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is greater than anything else that you could possibly fill in the blank with, that both the Messiah and the abundant life that he brings are better than any other way of life. We've looked the first week at how Jesus is greater than the angels, and that matters because they brought us a word of, of law which led to condemnation, but Jesus brings us a better word, a word of grace and of truth. And then last week we saw how Jesus is superior to Moses, the greatest prophet of all time. Moses was the, the chief servant in the household of God, but he was still a servant. Jesus is the son of God himself, the one who established the household from the beginning. He's therefore greater. And this week I want us to kind of step back a little bit from these comparisons and, and kind of look at the big picture overall. We're going to try to understand this morning how the way of Jesus is greater than the way of religion. I, I continue to meet people in Nashville. You know, there's lots of young professionals moving into Nashville all the time. We have several in our church here this morning. And I continue to hear stories about the way they grew up in church. And so many people that I talk to about their faith backgrounds have really been burned by the church. I continue to meet people who were raised in some kind of religion that was either empty of life and kind of devoid of spiritual fervor, or it was toxic even, a kind of religion that, that led them to hate themselves and to hate others and to feel a crushing weight of guilt and condemnation. This morning we're going to walk through the second part of Hebrews chapter 7, and I pray that at the end... God will reveal to our hearts a more excellent way than religion. Instead of reading the whole thing and, and recapping it, I, I think it's just going to be best to walk through it kind of verse by verse this morning. So let's pick up Hebrews chapter 7 in, in verse 11. This is an intense passage, okay? So if you're a little sleepy this morning, uh, you may want to wake up and put on your thinking caps, okay? You're a very intelligent congregation. We've got lots of PhDs here and very high-achieving folks, so get ready, okay? Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, there's a lot going on in that passage. Let's unpack that verse just a little bit. First, this says that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. You know, the Levitical priesthood are the priests in the Old Testament who were descended from the tribe of Levi. They were, you know, there were 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, and the sons of Levi were supposed to be set aside as the priests who administered the law. They taught the law day in, day out. They made the ritualistic sacrifices between God and the people of Israel. Maybe your first thought on on hearing this idea that perfection was not attainable through the priesthood, maybe your first thought was, okay, none of us are perfect, so why does that matter? But the original hearers, the original audience of the book of Hebrews, we know was Jewish Christians. And they would understand immediately that God is a holy God. Only perfection can enter into God's presence. Nothing short of of a total perfectly clean slate is worthy to be ushered into the presence of God because God is completely holy, right? He's completely other than. Nothing is profane or common about God. Therefore, he cannot tolerate, he cannot abide sin in any form. Otherwise, he would not be a holy or good God. So you might be thinking now, are you saying you have to be perfect to enter into God's presence? I'm not perfect. Are you saying you have to be perfect to to go to heaven? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Not just what I'm saying, but what I believe the Bible is clearly teaching us this morning. So now you may be thinking, great, there's no hope for any of us. If, If you have to be perfect to go to heaven, I'm sure not perfect. Just stay with me, okay? I think we'll see as we go along what I'm talking about here. You know, the the Jewish people believed that maybe, just maybe, if they made the right sacrifices at the right time, if they followed the Torah, the law, closely enough, if they were able to, to obey the rules well enough and do all those sacrifices correctly, just maybe their sins could be atoned for and they could enter into God's presence through the, the sacrifices of the law But the truth is, no matter how many lambs, no matter how many goats, no matter how many bulls or doves that they offered up on the altar of the burnt offerings, it was never enough to remove their guilt and atone for their sins completely. That's why the author of Hebrews is saying, now a new priesthood is therefore necessary. You see, the the, the old priesthood was, was part of this era, this time of, of preparation for this present age. We now live, ever since Jesus came, in the age of fulfillment. The now but not yet that we currently indwell. So this new priesthood is for this present era of fulfillment. And this new priest would be different. This new priest would not come from the line of Levi, He would be of a new order, it says here, the order of Melchizedek. That's a fun word to say. Melchizedek. What is that all about? Well, let's keep reading and we'll explain as we go. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, 
there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Well, of course, you change the, the, the law prescribed priesthood, you're changing the law. If we're going to have a non-Levitical priest, a priest that's outside the Levitical priesthood, then you're changing the law in a pretty major way. The, the Torah clearly states that a, a succession of priests was supposed to come from the generations of the tribe of Levi. So if you take that out of the, the Torah, then it's changing the law in a big way. And what this means is that the old priesthood, which was for this era of preparation, must mean that the law as well, the whole law, the whole Torah itself, was meant for the time of preparation. It no longer has bearing on our lives. This is a big deal. You know, millions of of devout Jews in this first century in which the Hebrew author was writing had based their entire lives around the law, the Torah. The way that they ate, the way that they drank, the way that they bathed, the way that they dealt with their relations with their neighbors and friends and family, all was defined by the Torah. The, the author of Hebrews is, is really tearing down some major worldview structures here in chapter 7 by saying this has all changed. How has it changed? Through this new priest primarily, of course. Look at verse 13. For the one, the new priest, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus was from the line of David, which everybody knows David is from the tribe of Judah. We know that he was not a Levite. No Judahites had ever been priests before. That's crazy. We know that there were even early Jewish Christians who tried to explain that Jesus was actually a Levite in order to make the idea of him being a high priest more palatable, more believable to first century Jews. They said, oh, Jesus was a Levite, so he could be a priest. But that, that misses the whole point here. This, this new priesthood is something completely different from the old one. This is not about the Levitical priest. Then look at verse 15. This, this difference in priesthoods, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, one who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, let's talk about old Mel, Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Melchizedek is a fascinating figure in the Bible. He shows up mysteriously way back in Genesis chapter 14 when God was just beginning to implement his plan to redeem the world through one family that would come from one guy. His name was Abraham. God called Abraham to, to leave his father's house and his country and his kindred and to go to the promised land where God would show him to go. And, and he, he takes Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and they, they go on all these adventures from Ur of the, the Chaldeans. They, they move west and they end up in Egypt. And then finally, God brings them into the promised land. And 
And the whole time God's looking out for them and, and Lot and, and Abraham prosper so much that they have to part ways and Lot settles in the, the city of Sodom. And, and these kings all join together and make this huge army and they come and they attack Sodom and they take Lot as captive. And so Abraham, being the great uncle that he is, he gets the uncle of the year award. He, he takes 318 of his own men and he goes to the camp of this army, and at night he divides his forces and he attacks this huge army. And of course the Lord delivers them into Abraham's hand, and he rescues Lot. Not only Lot, but he brings all the possessions of Sodom back to, to the city of Sodom. And, and this is what happens here in verse uh, chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 17. It will be on the screen. After Abraham's return from the defeat of Cador Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, El Elyon in Hebrew who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Isn't that a fascinating passage? This guy shows up out of nowhere who's a king who's also priest of God Most High, bringing a, a victory meal to Abram of bread and wine. What does that remind you of? And, and this is way before priest of God were even a thing. There weren't priests until the Exodus when God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. That was 500 years after this. Who is this guy? He's a priest of God Most High before there are priests. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, Zadok, righteousness. But it also says he was the king of a town named Salem. You know what that town would become? Jerusalem later. Salem comes from the word shalom, which means peace. This guy is the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. Interesting. He's, he's the king of righteousness, being right before God. He's the prince of peace, the one who ceases the hostility between God and man. The only other time that we see Melchizedek show up in the Old Testament is in the book of Psalms, one of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 110. In fact, this Psalm is more quoted in the New Testament than any other Psalm in the entire 150 Psalms. The entire chapter of Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 28, is basically a running commentary on Psalm 110. It's a New Testament exposition of Psalm 110. This is a song of King David, the greatest king of all time. And it looked forward to the coming Messiah. Look at verse 1. It'll be on the screen. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David says, God says to David's Lord. Jesus referenced this verse himself in the Gospels to show how the Messiah is clearly superior to David because David calls the Messiah Lord here. We see the Apostle, Apostle Paul also used this verse to talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father until such a time when God would make all of the enemies 
of Jesus subjected under his rule and authority like a footstool for him to sit on his throne and put his feet up on. I love that image. So now look at verse 4 of this same psalm, Psalm 110, this messianic psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He says to the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So rabbis and scholars by the first century knew that the Messiah would be both a king and a priest, but they knew that he'd be a different kind of king and priest, one that comes from the order of Melchizedek. They knew that God says that the Messiah will be a priest forever. You know, all the Levitical priests had at least one thing in common, right? They all died. (laughs) Every one of them died. I love to hear Richard do funerals. I don't love funerals, but Richard's really good at them. He always reminds people that we all are facing mortality. All the priests face mortality, but our high priest doesn't face mortality anymore. We know that everyone here in this place bears mortal flesh that we indwell for such a short season that is fading away quickly, I might add. But the Messiah would somehow conquer death, it says here, by the power of an indestructible life. You know what that's about, don't you? Because of Jesus' glorious resurrection that we celebrate every Easter morning, our high priest is now immortal. Let's keep going, verse 18. For on the one hand, a, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That sounds like good news because it is good news. In the Christian tradition, we refer to this good news as gospel. If, If you were in despair earlier when I said only perfect people can go to heaven, well, let me explain to you a, a better hope through which we can now draw near to the holy God and enter into his presence, just like Ed Wakefield did last week. The, the law is now set aside because it never had the power to save. It never had the power to make us perfect. It never had the power to usher us into God's presence fully confident and cleansed. Let's keep reading. Verse 20, it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Remember in Psalm 110.4 how, how the Lord said that You are a priest, Messiah. He swore, and he has not changed his mind to the Messiah. He said, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This new priest has a divine oath, has God's own promise as his backing for validity and authority. The Levitical priest had a command from the law, the sons of Levi shall be the priests. But the new priest has God's own promise. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He's the one who promises to ensure that what the covenant says will happen, will happen. You know, when I was in my first year of seminary at Beeson Divinity School, it became more and more apparent that God, in his amazing grace, 
had led me to this beautiful, godly, intelligent woman, and that it was time to to get serious about following uh, her for the rest of my life and the, the covenant of marriage. So I started ring shopping, right? That's what you do. And, and I, of course, I asked her friends, what kind of ring does she like? She had a couple friends who'd been engaged. And, and I, I found a ring that I thought was perfect. And, of course, my, my youth minister's salary didn't quite uh, allow for the kind of ring that, uh, you know about that, Trey, right? About uh, the ring that I, I wanted to, uh, the, the ring that I thought she deserved, of course. So when I went to buy it, uh, I said, I'll just, I'll do it, you know, on installments. That's fine. And the wise jeweler said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, I'm going to need a guarantor. Uh, I'm going to need someone to sign the bottom line. Someone with a little more financial credibility than you have. Someone who can ensure that, yeah, I will make these payments regardless of my ability or not. You know, our salvation is not up to us. And, and that ring, the payments, were not up to me entirely. How embarrassing is this? My mom ended up having to go with me to buy the ring and to sign on the bottom line as the guarantor that the payments would come. Before I could get that rock, we needed a guarantor. You and I have a guarantor of our salvation. We have one whose situation, their righteousness situation, is infinitely more stable than our own. His riches of righteousness are never exhausted. He is the one who signs for us, guaranteeing that no matter what you and I do, that our salvation is secure because of him, not because of us. And now nothing can separate us from his love because he is able to guarantee that he can cover us. Before we close, there's two more reasons why the Melchizedek priesthood is better. First off, it's permanent. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Praise Jesus since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yeah, the old priest just kept dying off, right? But Jesus is a priest forever because he rose from the dead. Therefore, he's able to save us to the uttermost. Isn't that beautiful? This is a a complete salvation. It it, it not only is a salvation forever, but it's also a, a complete salvation in that it affects every aspect of our lives. Because of the gospel, the, the way that, that we live is changed. The way that we work is changed. The way that we love and play and rest is all changed. Because the gospel permeates every aspect of our life, we are saved to the uttermost. We're never the same after his saving grace has permeated our being. And it says here, he always lives now to make intercession. You know what intercession is? It's, it's going on behalf of someone else to God, making requests on their behalf. It means that Jesus is constantly bringing our requests, our needs before the Father. Think about that. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How could anyone possibly condemn us? Are you condemning yourself today? How could you possibly do that when you know that God is sitting on his throne with Jesus pleading our case to him on our behalf? How could anyone possibly condemn us? There's a great little worship song that we sing a lot in, in simple worship with, with Hunter. It's, some, it's called Before the Throne of God Above. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no one can bid me thence depart. No one can bid me thence depart. Isn't that beautiful? We truly have blessed assurance knowing that our high priest ever lives and pleads for us. And as long as he's there at the Father's side, no one can speak a word against us. Let's look at the, the, the final reason for why this priesthood is superior to the old one. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The, the Melchizedek, Melchizedek priesthood is better than the old one because of Christ's character. The Levitical priests were all flesh-dwelling men, and you know about those guys, right? <laughs> Romans 3.23 says all of us, everyone in here who indwells flesh, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I know some amazing godly people. We have some right here in this room who are saints, heroes of mine in the faith, and yet their feet are made of clay. They have stumbled. They have sinned just like you and I have as well. There is no one righteous, the Bible says, but Jesus even though he lived among sinners, even though he received sinners, even though he ate with sinners, even though he was known as a friend of sinners, was still set apart from sinners. We know that he is our perfect high priest. Romans, I mean Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we didn't get to this one says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He indeed is our perfect high priest, right? Because he's able to know where we're coming from and sympathize with us. He's been tempted in every way as we are, and yet he is the perfect spotless lamb still. He could atone for our sins perfectly as the lamb without a blemish. So what does this all have to do with religion? 
Well, the, the Levitical priesthood served as the, the mediators in a religious system. It was a system of, of ritual and, and sacrifice and laws and rules that were meant to, to help make God's people holy as God is. The priests were the, the teachers of the law who were to daily instruct the people in the ways of God, showing them, in essence, really how far short they had indeed fallen of the standard of God's perfect glory. You know how many laws there are in the Torah? The, the, the Jewish people counted them, of course. There's 613. They call them the mitzvot, the commandments. 613. You can, even to this day, you can order a book of the 613 laws so you can check every day and make sure you're following them all. It sounds like a miserable way to live, doesn't it? Always constantly wondering where you're breaking a law, whether inadvertently or advertently. You know, even today, there are many Jews who carry that list around with them. And don't, we shouldn't shake our heads at that. We shouldn't laugh at that because I know plenty of Christians who think that if they just vote the right way, if they attend church enough, if they give a little money to some churches and some good causes, maybe even serve on a committee or a, a ministry team or a deacon, then God will let them into heaven and he'll have to. I'm not a murderer. I didn't deal drugs. Surely I'll go to heaven. Remember that only perfection gains access into God's holy presence, to his glory, to heaven. And that perfection can only come through a great high priest, a king of righteousness who is able to make us right with God as he is. This is the righteousness that can only come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Religion depends on rules, right, and regulations and, and, and rituals and practices. Religion is based on law, but our salvation doesn't come from religion our salvation is based on the grace of Jesus Christ. The law is not bad, okay? I'm not saying that. Jesus came to fulfill it. The law shows us God's standard of perfection and holiness. But law alone is soul-crushing religion. It's a weight that none of us can bear. I love this comparison of law and grace by a pastor in Texas named Bob Hoekstra. The law of God is the what? The grace of God is the how. The law of God reveals sin. The grace of God forgives sin. The law of God indicates man's problem. The grace of God provides God's remedy. The law of God demands performance by man. The grace of God offers provision from God. The law of God is the standard the grace of God is the means. The law of God is the spiritual measuring rod that evaluates lives. The grace of God is the nurturing resource that produces spiritual life. The law of God tells of the character of God. The grace of God reproduces that character in us. The law of God is the effect that God wants to see. The grace of God is the cause that brings forth that effect. Maybe you need to quit playing religious games here today. Maybe you need to come embrace your great high priest, fully depending on his grace to make you 
right with God. Nothing else can do it. Maybe you feel a crushing weight of guilt. Maybe you've been raised in some kind of legalistic, fundamentalist, oppressive, toxic religion. Jesus waits to free you by his grace this morning. Come to him with open arms. Don't settle for religion. Experience the abundant life that is ours by grace through faith. Let's pray. Lord God, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we say to you, our God, that you are good, that you are holy, that we are but dust that you have breathed life into. We are clay vessels, but God, you have put the treasure of the gospel in us. You have hidden in our hearts the grace of Jesus Christ through our great high priest, O oh God. We can never thank you enough. We can never repay you for the grace that you've shown us. When we were in full and open rebellion against you, God, you made us your children. Help us to live lives of gratitude daily, day in, day out, thanking you for all that we have, for all that we are, and most importantly, for all that you are, our great high priest, the one who has loved us so much that you sent your only son into this world as a spotless lamb to take our place, to pay the price that we owed yet could never pay, to be the guarantor of our salvation. God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who feels the crushing effects of religion, who feels the, the weight of trying to be good enough, of having to perform their religious duties, I pray that you would give them freedom in Christ Jesus today. I pray that you would help us to live into the reality of our King of righteousness, that he has given us his righteousness in exchange for our sins. We thank you for the gospel. We pray that we would live out the gratitude everywhere we go, spreading the joy of your salvation at our homes, at our schools, at our places of business, with our friends and families this week. Oh God, we love you and pray this in your high and your holy name. Amen. We're going to sing our hymn of invitation now. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, if you've always felt like you had to be good enough to get into heaven, let go of that religion this morning and come and, and receive Christ for the first time and lay your burdens down. Maybe you've been struggling with some other sin and you're feeling that weight of guilt. You're never going to be able to conquer sin on your own. The good news is we don't have to. We have a great high priest who's done it for us. Lay your burdens down this morning again and receive his grace afresh. It is not a cheap grace. It costs the life of his own son, Jesus Christ. Let that grace permeate your soul this morning. Maybe you need a church family. Maybe you want to be a part of what God is doing. He is on the move here at Woodmont Baptist Church, and you want to be a part of it and join in. You want to give of your time, your talent, your treasure. You want to plug into what God's doing here with this family of faith. I'd love to talk with you about what it means to join the church here this morning. Whatever it is, don't leave this place until you've made that decision this morning. Let's stand and sing, Have Thine Own Way, Lord.